0: This episode is brought to you by bunnyslippers.com. Keep your feet warm this winter with some bunny slippers from bunnyslippers.com. Look cool like Chris Knight from Real Genius. You know what? They've got all kinds of cool slippers, all kinds of novelty slippers of all sorts. If you like horror movies, they've got horror movie stuff. If you like fantasy, you like science fiction, they've got that. They've got sports stuff. They've got all kinds of stuff. They've got slippers you can plug into USB things. Anyway. Bunnieslippers.com. They are the sponsor of the show. And if you live someplace like in Australia, New Zealand, someplace where it's warm this time of year, they've got cool t-shirts at founditemclothing.com. Check out founditemclothing.com. I'm wearing one right now. can't see it, but it's, it's uh, a shirt that Jeff Bridges wears in the Big Lebowski. Check it out. It's pretty cool. Based off of a Japanese baseball t-shirt. Anyway, so... Uh, this month, we're going to be doing Jack London stories, so check that out. And there will be part of the calendar and what will be coming out listed in the show notes, so check that out right now. And also, why not check out Dave's Corner of the Universe.com? It's Dave's Corner. You've heard him on the podcast, you'll hear him in an upcoming thing that we're doing about. Underground secret bases and fan fiction and cool things like that. Um, Listen for the episode uh, of, uh, I think it's D U G S, uh, Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans. Check that out when it becomes available. I'll be hosting the first few episodes, of course, on this feed, so you can always check that out or chuck it out. And, you know, it's your podcast feed. Trim it how you feel. Anyway, uh, money for the shows, various shows, we'll get them their own podcast feeds if you want to listen to PGTTCM just by itself or Black Clock Audio Tales just by itself. Zach Ferguson has his own, but occasionally we're going to throw out Articulate Warblers and also probably we're going to have some of the shows by Dave from Dave and hopefully he'll still do some Dave's Corner of the Universe stuff for us, but you know. I love producing podcasts, so if you've got a podcast idea, track me down, and we'll do something, especially if you're in the Portland metro area. Um, I, I'm working with Zach, and he's over in Brighton, England, and, you know, it's working out so far so good. But yeah, no, uh, let us know if you got something that would be of interest to us. So yeah, on with some Jack London. Here we go. And why not check out Monster Kid Radio? And keep an eye and an ear out for Twisted Pulp. Twisted Pulp. Here we go. Jack London, right now.
1: Recording by Matt Saw. A lost oligarch. But in remembering the old life, I have run ahead of my story into the new life. The wholesale jail delivery did not occur until well along into 1915. Complicated as it was, it was carried through without a hitch, and as a very creditable achievement, it cheered us on in our work. From Cuba to California, out of scores of jails, military prisons and fortresses, in a single night, we delivered 51 of our 52 congressmen, and in addition over 300 other leaders. There was not a single instance of miscarriage. Not only did they escape, but every one of them went to the refuges as planned. The one comrade congressman we did not get, Was Arthur Simpson, and he had already died in Cabanas after cruel tortures. The eighteen months that followed was perhaps the happiest of my life with Ernest. During that time, we were never apart. Later, when we went back into the world, we were separated much. Not more impatiently do I await the flame of tomorrow's revolt than did I that night await the coming of Ernest. I had not seen him for so long, and the thought of a possible hitch or error in our plans that would keep him still in his island prison almost drove me mad. The hours passed like ages. I was all alone. Biedenbach and three young men who had been living in the refuge were out and over the mountain, heavily armed and prepared for anything. The refuges all over the land were quite empty, I imagine, of comrades that night. Just as the sky paled with the first warning of dawn, I heard the signal from above and gave the answer. In the darkness, I almost embraced Biedenbach, who came down first. But the next moment, I was in Ernest's arms. And in that moment, so complete had been my transformation, I discovered it was only by an effort of will that I could be the old Avis Everhard, with the old mannerisms and smiles, phrases and intonations of voice. It was by strong effort only that I was able to maintain my old identity. I could not allow myself to forget for an instant, so automatically imperative had become the new personality I had created. Once inside the little cabin I saw Ernest's face in the light. With the exception of the prison pallor, there was no change in him, at least not much. He was my same lover, husband and hero. And yet there was a certain ascetic lengthening of the lines of his face. But he could well stand it, for it seemed to add a certain nobility of refinement to the riotous excess of life that had always marked his features. He might have been a trifle graver than of yore, but the glint of laughter still was in his eyes. He was twenty pounds lighter, but in splendid physical condition. He had kept up exercise during the whole period of confinement, and his muscles were like iron. In truth, he was in better condition than when he had entered prison. Hours passed before his head-touched pillow, and I had soothed him off to sleep. But there was no sleep for me. I was too happy, and the fatigue of jailbreaking and riding horseback had not been mine. While Ernest slept, I changed my dress, arranged my hair differently, and came back to my new automatic self. Then, when Biedenbach and the other comrades awoke, with their aid I concocted a little conspiracy. All was ready, and we were in the cave room that served for kitchen and dining room when Ernest opened the door and entered. At that moment, Biedenbach addressed me as Mary, and I turned and answered him. Then I glanced at Ernest with curious interest, such as any young comrade might betray on seeing for the first time so noted a hero of the Revolution, But Ernest's glance took me in, and questioned impatiently past and around the room. The next moment I was being introduced to him as Mary Holmes. To complete the deception, an extra plate was laid, and when we sat down to table, one chair was not occupied. I could have cried with joy, as I noted Ernest's increasing uneasiness and impatience. Finally, he could stand it no longer. "'Where's my wife?' he demanded bluntly. "'She is still asleep,' I answered. It was the crucial moment. But my voice was a strange voice, and in it he recognized nothing familiar. The meal went on. I talked a great deal, and enthusiastically, as a hero worshipper might talk, and it was obvious that he was my hero. I rose to a climax of enthusiasm and worship, and before he could guess my intention, threw my arms around his neck and kissed him on the lips. He held me from him at arm's length and stared about in annoyance and perplexity. The four men greeted him with roars of laughter, and explanations were made. At first he was sceptical. He scrutinized me keenly and was half convinced, then shook his head and would not believe. It was not until I became the old Avis Everhard and whispered secrets in his ear that none knew but he and Avis Everhard that he accepted me as his really, truly wife. It was later in the day that he took me in his arms, manifesting great embarrassment and claiming polygamous emotions. "'You are my Avis,' he said, "'and you are also someone else. "'You are two women.' and therefore you are my harem. At any rate, we are safe now. If the United States becomes too hot for us, why, I have qualified for citizenship in Turkey. Note, at that time polygamy was still practiced in Turkey. Life became for me very happy in the refuge. It is true, we worked hard and for long hours, but we worked together. We had each other for 18 precious months, and we were not lonely for there was always a coming and going of leaders and comrades, strange voices from the underworld of intrigue and revolution, bringing stranger tales of strife and war from all our battle line. And there was much fun and delight. We were not mere gloomy conspirators. We toiled hard and suffered greatly, filled the gaps in our ranks and went on, and through all the labor and the play and interplay of life and death, we found time to laugh and love. There were artists, scientists, scholars, musicians, and poets among us, and in that hole in the ground culture was higher and finer than in the palaces of wonder cities of the oligarchs. In truth, many of our comrades toiled at making beautiful those same palaces and wonder cities. Note this is not Braggadocio on the part of Abis Everhard. The flower of the artistic and intellectual world were revolutionists, with the exception of a few of the musicians and singers, and of a few of the oligarchs, all the great creators of the period whose names have come down to us, were revolutionists nor were we confined to the refuge itself. Often at night we rode over the mountains for exercise, and we rode on Wixen's horses. If only he knew how many revolutionists his horses have carried. We even went on picnics to isolated spots we knew, where we remained all day, going before daylight and returning after dark. Also, we used Wixen's cream and butter, and Ernest was not above shooting Wixen's quail and rabbits, and, on occasion, his young bucks. Note. Even as late as that period, cream and butter were still crudely extracted from cow's milk. The laboratory preparation of foods had not yet begun. Indeed, it was a safe refuge, and I have said that it was discovered only once, and this brings me to the clearing up of the mystery of the disappearance of young Wixen. Now that he is dead, I am free to speak. There was a nook on the bottom of the Great Hole where the sun shone for several hours, and which was hidden from above. Here we had carried many loads of gravel from the creek bed, so that it was dry and warm, a pleasant basking place. And here, one afternoon, I was drowsing, half-asleep, over a volume of Mendenhall. I was so comfortable and secure that even his flaming lyrics failed to stir me. Note. In all the extant literature and documents of that period, continual reference is made to the poems of Rudolph Mendenhall. By his comrades he was called The Flame. He was undoubtedly a great genius, yet... Beyond weird and haunting fragments of his verse, quoted in the writings of others, nothing of his has come down to us. He was executed by the Iron Heel in 1928 A.D. I was aroused by a clod of earth striking at my feet. Then, from above, I heard a sound of scrambling. The next moment, a young man, with a final slide down the crumbling wall, alighted at my feet. It was Philip Wixon, though I did not know him at the time. He looked at me coolly and uttered a low whistle of surprise. Well, he said, and the next moment, cap in hand, he was saying, I beg your pardon, I did not expect to find anyone here. I was not so cool. I was still a tyro so far as concerned knowing how to behave in desperate circumstances. Later on, when I was an international spy, I should have been less clumsy, I'm sure. As it was, I scrambled to my feet and cried out the danger call. Why did you do that? he asked, looking at me searchingly. It was evident that he had no suspicion of our presence when making the descent. I recognized this with relief. For what purpose do you think I did it? I counted. I was indeed clumsy in those days. I don't know, he answered, shaking his head. Unless you've got friends about. Anyway, you've got some explanations to make. I don't like the look of it. You are trespassing. This is my father's land, and... But at that moment, Beedenbach, ever polite and gentle, said from behind him in a low voice, Hands up, my young sir. Young Wixen put his hands up first, then turned to confront Biedenbach, who held a thirty-thirty 30 automatic rifle on him. Wixen was imperturbable. "'Oh, oh,' he said. "'A nest of revolutionists, and quite a hornet's nest, it would seem. "'Well, you won't abide here long, I can tell you.' "'Maybe you'll abide here long enough to reconsider that statement,' Biedenbach said quietly. "'And in the meanwhile, I must ask you to come inside with me.' "'Inside?' the young man was genuinely astonished." Have you a catacomb here? I have heard of such things. Come and see, Beanback answered with his adorable accent. But it is unlawful, was the protest. Yes, by your law, the terrorist replied significantly. But by our law, believe me, it is quite lawful. You must accustom yourself to the fact that you are in another world than the one of oppression and brutality in which you have lived. There is room for argument there, Wixen muttered. Then stay with us and discuss it the young fellow laughed and followed his captor into the house. He was led into the inner cave room, and one of the young comrades left to guard him while we discussed the situation in the kitchen. Biedenbach, with tears in his eyes, held that Wixen must die, and was quite relieved when we outvoted him and his horrible proposition. On the other hand, we could not dream of allowing the young oligarch to depart. "'I'll tell you what to do,' Ernest said. "'We'll keep him and give him an education.' "'I bespeak the privilege, then, of enlightening him in jurisprudence,' Beatenback cried. And so a decision was laughingly reached. We would keep Philip Wixson a prisoner and educate him in our ethics and sociology. But in the meantime there was work to be done. All trace of the young oligarch must be obliterated. There were the marks he had left when descending the crumbling wall of the hole. This task fell to Beatenback, and slung on a rope from above he toiled cunningly for the rest of the day till no sign remained.' Back up the canyon, from the lip of the hole, all marks were likewise removed. Then, at twilight, came John Carlson, who demanded Wixon's shoes. The young man did not want to give up his shoes, and even offered to fight for them, till he felt the horseshoer's strength in Ernest's hands. Carlson afterward reported several blisters and much grievous loss of skin due to the smallness of the shoes, but he succeeded in doing gallant work with them. Back from the lip of the hole, where ended the young man's obliterated trail, Carlson put on the shoes and walked away to the left. He walked for miles, around Knolls, over ridges and through canyons, and finally covered the trail in the running water of a creek bed. Here he removed the shoes, and, still hiding trail for a distance, at last put on his own shoes. A week later, Wixson got back his shoes. That night the hounds were out, and there was little sleep in the refuge. Next day, time and again, the baying hounds came down the canyon, plunged off to the left on the trail Carlson had made for them, and were lost to ear in the farther canyons high up the mountain. And all the time our men waited in the refuge, weapons in hand, automatic revolvers and rifles, to say nothing of half a dozen infernal machines of Biedenbach's manufacture. A more surprised party of rescuers could not be imagined had they ventured down into our hiding place. I have now given the true disappearance of Philip Wixon, one time oligarch and later comrade in the revolution, for we converted him in the end. His mind was fresh and plastic, and by nature he was very ethical. Several months later we rode him on one of his father's horses over Sonoma Mountains to Petaluma Creek and embarked him in a small fishing lodge. By easy stages we smuggled him along our underground railway to the Carmel Refuge. There he remained eight months, at the end of which time, for two reasons, he was loath to leave us. One reason was that he had fallen in love with Anna Roylston, and the other was that he had become one of us, It was not until he became convinced of the hopelessness of his love affair that he acceded to our wishes and went back to his father. Ostensibly an oligarch until his death, he was in reality one of the most valuable of our agents. Often and often has the Iron Heel been dumbfounded by the miscarriage of its plans and operations against us. If it but knew the number of its own members who are our agents, it would understand. Young Wixon never wavered in his loyalty to the cause. In truth. His very death was incurred by his devotion to duty. In the great storm of 1927, while attending a meeting of our leaders, he contracted the pneumonia of which he died. Note, the case of this young man was not unusual. Many young men of the oligarchy, impelled by sense of right conduct, or their imaginations captured by the glory of the revolution, ethically or romantically devoted their lives to it. In similar way, many sons of the Russian nobility played their parts in the earlier and protracted revolution in that country. End of chapter 20 Recording by Matt Saw Montreal MattSaw.org ...the world without, and we were learning thoroughly the strength of the oligarchy with which we were at war. Out of the flux of transition, the new institutions were forming more definitely, and taking on the appearance and attributes of permanence. The oligarchs had succeeded in devising a governmental machine, as intricate as it was vast, that worked, and this despite all our efforts to clog and hamper. This was a surprise to many of the revolutionists. They had not conceived it possible. Nevertheless, the work of the country went on. The men toiled in the mines and fields, perforce they were no more than slaves. As for the vital industries, everything prospered. The members of the great labor castes were contented and worked on merrily. For the first time in their lives they knew industrial peace. No more were they worried by slack times, strike and lockout and the union label. They lived in more comfortable homes and in delightful cities of their own, delightful compared with the slums and ghettos in which they had formerly dwelt. They had better food to eat, less hours of labor, more holidays, and a greater amount and variety of interests and pleasures and for their less fortunate brothers and sisters, the unfavored laborers, the driven people of the abyss, they cared nothing. An age of selfishness was dawning upon mankind, and yet this is not altogether true. The labor castes were honeycombed by our agents, men whose eyes saw beyond the belly need, the radiant figure of liberty and brotherhood. Another great institution that had taken form and was working smoothly was the mercenaries, This body of soldiers had been evolved out of the old regular army, and was now a million strong, to say nothing of the colonial forces. The mercenaries constituted a race apart. They dwelt in cities of their own, which were practically self-governed, and they were granted many privileges. By them, a large portion of the perplexing surplus was consumed. They were losing all touch and sympathy with the rest of the people, and, in fact, were developing their own class morality and consciousness. And yet we had thousands of our agents among them. Note, the mercenaries, in the last days of the Iron Heel, played an important role. They constituted the balance of power in the struggles between the labor castes and the oligarchs, and now to one side and now to the other, through their strength according to the play of intrigue and conspiracy. The oligarchs themselves were going through a remarkable, and it must be confessed, unexpected development. As a class, they disciplined themselves. Every member had his work to do in the world, and this work he was compelled to do there were no more idle rich young men their strength was used to give united strength to the oligarchy they served as leaders of troops and as lieutenants and captains of industry they found careers in applied science and many of them became great engineers they went into the multitudinous divisions of the government took service in the colonial possessions and by tens of thousands went into the various secret services they were i may say apprenticed to education to art to the church to science to literature and in those fields they served the important function of moulding the thought processes of the nation in the direction of the perpetuity of the oligarchy. They were taught, and later they in turn taught, that what they were doing was right. They assimilated the aristocratic idea from the moment they began, as children, to receive impressions of the world. The aristocratic idea was woven into the making of them, until it became bone of them and flesh of them. They looked upon themselves as wild animal trainers, rulers of beasts. From beneath their feet rose always the subterranean rumbles of revolt. Violent death ever stalked in their midst. Bomb and knife and bullet were looked upon as so many fangs of the roaring abysmal beast they must dominate if humanity were to persist. They were the saviors of humanity, and they regarded themselves as heroic and sacrificing laborers for the highest good. They, as a class, believed that they alone maintained civilization. It was their belief that if ever they weakened, the great beast would engulf them and everything of beauty and wonder and joy and good in its cavernous and slime-dripping maw. Without them, anarchy would reign and humanity would drop backward into the primitive night out of which it had so painfully emerged. The horrid picture of anarchy was held always before their child's eyes until they, in turn, obsessed by this cultivated fear, held the picture of anarchy before the eyes of the children that followed them. This was the beast to be stamped upon, and the highest duty of the aristocrat was to stamp upon it. In short, they alone, by their unremitting toil and sacrifice, stood between weak humanity and the all-devouring beast, and they believed it, firmly believed it. I cannot lay too great stress upon this high ethical righteousness of the whole oligarch class. This has been the strength of the Iron Heel, and too many of the comrades have been slow or loath to realize it. Many of them have ascribed the strength of the Iron Hill to its system of reward and punishment. This is a mistake. Heaven and Hell may be the prime factors of zeal in the religion of a fanatic, but for the great majority of the religious, Heaven and Hell are incidental to right and wrong. Love of the Right, desire for the Right, unhappiness with anything less than the Right, in short, Right Conduct is the prime factor of religion. And so with the oligarchy. Prisons, banishment and degradation, honours and palaces and wonder cities are all incidental. The great driving force of the oligarchs is the belief that they are doing right. Never mind the exceptions, and never mind the oppression and injustice in which the Iron Heel was conceived. All is granted. The point is that the strength of the oligarchy today lies in its satisfied conception of its own righteousness. Note. Out of the ethical incoherency and inconsistency of capitalism the oligarchs emerged with a new ethics coherent and definite, sharp and severe as steel the most absurd and unscientific and at the same time the most potent ever possessed by any tyrant class the oligarchs believed their ethics in spite of the fact that biology and evolution gave them the lie and because of their faith for three centuries they were able to hold back the mighty tide of human progress A spectacle, profound, tremendous, puzzling to the metaphysical moralist, and one that to the materialist is the cause of many doubts and reconsiderations. For that matter, the strength of the revolution during these frightful twenty years has resided in nothing else than the sense of righteousness. In no other way can be explained our sacrifices and martyrdoms. For no other reason did Rudolf Mendenhall flame out his soul for the cause and sing his wild swan song that last night of life. For no other reason did Hilbert die under torture, refusing to the last to betray his comrades. For no other reason has Anna Royalston refused Blessed Motherhood. For no other reason has John Carlson been the faithful and unrewarded custodian of the Glen Ellen Refuge. It does not matter. Young or old, man or woman, high or low, genius or clod, go where one will among the comrades of the revolution, the motor force will be found to be a great and abiding desire for the right. But I have run away from my narrative. Ernest and I well understood, before we left the refuge, how the strength of the Iron Heel was developing. The labor castes, the mercenaries, and the great hordes of secret agents and police of various sorts were all pledged to the oligarchy. In the main, and ignoring the loss of liberty, they were better off than they had been. On the other hand, the great helpless mass of the population, the people of the abyss, was sinking into a brutish apathy of content with misery. Whenever strong proletarians asserted their strength in the midst of the mass, they were drawn away from the mass by the oligarchs, and given better conditions by being made members of the labor castes or of the mercenaries. Thus discontent was lulled, and the proletariat robbed of its natural leaders. The condition of the people of the abyss was pitiable. Common school education, so far as they were concerned, had ceased. They lived like beasts in great, squalid labor ghettos, festering in misery and degradation. All their old liberties were gone. They were labor slaves. Choice of work was denied them. Likewise was denied them the right to move from place to place, or the right to bear or possess arms. They were not land serfs like the farmers. They were machine serfs and labor serfs. When unusual needs arose for them, such as the building of the great highways and airlines, of canals, tunnels, subways and fortifications, levies were made on the labor ghettos, and tens of thousands of serfs willy-nilly were transported to the scene of operations. Great armies of them are toiling now at the building of Ardis, housed in wretched barracks where family life cannot exist and where decency is displaced by dull bestiality. In all truth, there in the labor ghettos is the roaring abysmal beast the oligarchs fear so dreadfully, but it is the beast of their own making. In it they will not let the ape and tiger die. And just now the word has gone forth that new levers are being imposed for the building of Asgard, the projected wonder city that will far exceed Ardis when the latter is completed. Note, Ardis was completed in 1942 AD, Asgard was not completed until 1984 AD. It was 52 years in the building, during which time a permanent army of half a million serfs was employed. At times these numbers swelled to over a million, without any account being taken of the hundreds of thousands of the labor castes and the artists. We of the revolution will go on with that great work, but it will not be done by the miserable serfs. The walls and towers and shafts of that fair city will arise to the sound of singing, and into its beauty and wonder will be woven not sighs and groans, but music and laughter. Ernest was madly impatient to be out in the world and doing, for our ill-fated first revolt that had miscarried in the Chicago Commune was ripening fast. Yet he possessed his soul with patience, and during this time of his torment, when Hadley, who had been brought for the purpose from Illinois, made him over into another man, he revolved great plans in his head for the organization of the learned proletariat, and for the maintenance of at least the rudiments of education among the people of the Abyss. All this, of course, in the event of the first revolt being a failure. Note: among the revolutionists were many surgeons and in vivisection they attained marvelous proficiency in avis everhard's words they could literally make a man over to them the elimination of scars and disfigurements was a trivial detail they changed the features with such microscopic care that no traces were left of their handiwork the nose was a favorite organ to work upon skin grafting and hair transplanting were among their commonest devices the changes in expression they accomplished were wizard-like eyes and eyebrows lips mouths and ears were radically altered By cunning operations on tongue, throat, larynx, and nasal cavities, a man's whole enunciation and manner of speech could be changed. Desperate times give need for desperate remedies, and the surgeons of the revolution rose to the need. Among other things, they could increase an adult's stature by as much as four or five inches and decrease it by one or two inches. What they did is today a lost art. We have no need for it. It was not until January 1917 that we left the refuge. All had been arranged. We took our place at once as agent provocateur in the scheme of the Iron Heel. I was supposed to be Ernest's sister. By oligarchs and comrades on the inside, who were high in authority, place had been made for us. And we were in possession of all necessary documents, and our pasts were accounted for. With help on the inside, this was not difficult, for in that shadow world of secret service, identity was nebulous. Like ghosts, the agents came and went, obeying commands, fulfilling duties, following clues, making their reports often to officers they never saw, or cooperating with other agents they had never seen before and would never see again. End of chapter 21. Recording by Matt Saw. Montreal. matsaw.org. Recording by Matt Saw the Chicago Commune. As agents provocateur, not alone were we able to travel a great deal, but our very work threw us in contact with the proletariat and with our comrades, the revolutionists. Thus we were in both camps at the same time, ostensibly serving the Iron Heel and secretly working with all our might for the cause. There were many of us in the various secret services of the oligarchy, and despite the shakings up and reorganizations the Secret Services have undergone, they have never been able to weed all of us out. Ernest had largely planned the first revolt, and the date set had been somewhere early in the spring of 1918. In the fall of 1917, we were not ready. Much remained to be done, and when the revolt was precipitated, of course it was doomed to failure. The plot of necessity was frightfully intricate, and anything premature was sure to destroy it. This the Iron Heel foresaw, and laid its schemes accordingly. We had planned to strike our first blow at the nervous system of the oligarchy. The latter had remembered the general strike, and had guarded against the defection of the telegraphers by installing wireless stations in the control of the mercenaries. We, in turn, had countered this move. When the signal was given from every refuge all over the land and from the cities and towns and barracks, devoted comrades were to go forth and blow up the wireless stations. Thus, at the first shock, would the Iron Hill be brought to earth and lie practically dismembered. At the same moment, other comrades were to blow up the bridges and tunnels and disrupt the whole network of railroads. Still further, other groups of comrades, at the signal, were to seize the officers of the mercenaries and the police, as well as all oligarchs of unusual ability or who held executive positions. Thus would the leaders of the enemy be removed from the field of the local battles that would inevitably be fought all over the land. Many things were to occur simultaneously when the signal went forth. The Canadian and Mexican patriots, who were far stronger than the Iron Heel dreamed, were to duplicate our tactics. Then there were comrades, these were the women, for the men would be busy elsewhere, who were to post the proclamations from our secret presses. Those of us in the higher employ of the Iron Heel were to proceed immediately to make confusion and anarchy in all our departments. Inside the mercenaries were thousands of our comrades, Their work was to blow up the magazines and to destroy the delicate mechanism of all the war machinery. In the cities of the mercenaries and of the labor castes, similar programs of disruption were to be carried out. In short, a sudden, colossal, stunning blow was to be struck. Before the paralyzed oligarchy could recover itself, its end would have come. It would have meant terrible times and great loss of life, but no revolutionist hesitates at such things. Why, we even depended much in our plan on the unorganized people of the Abyss. They were to be loosed on the palaces and cities of the Masters, never mind the destruction of life and property. Let the abysmal brute roar, and the police and mercenaries slay. The abysmal brute would roar anyway, and the police and mercenaries would slay anyway. It would merely mean that various dangers to us were harmlessly destroying one another. In the meantime, we would be doing our own work, largely unhampered, and gaining control of all the machinery of society. Such was our plan, every detail of which had to be worked out in secret, and as the day drew near, communicated to more and more comrades. This was the danger point, the stretching of the conspiracy, but that danger point was never reached. Through its spy system, the Iron Heel got wind of the revolt and prepared to teach us another of its bloody lessons. Chicago was the devoted city selected for the instruction, and well were we instructed. Note: Chicago was the industrial inferno of the 19th century AD. A curious anecdote has come down to us of John Burns, a great English labor leader and one-time member of the British cabinet. In Chicago, while on a visit to the United States, he was asked by a newspaper reporter for his opinion of that city. Chicago, he answered, is a pocket edition of Hell, Sometime later, as he was going aboard his steamer to sail to England, he was approached by another reporter, who wanted to know if he had changed his opinion of Chicago. Yes, I have, was his reply. My present opinion is that Hell is a pocket edition of Chicago. Chicago was the ripest of all. Chicago which of old time was the city of blood, and which was to earn anew its name. There, the revolutionary spirit was strong. Too many bitter strikes had been curbed there in the days of capitalism for the workers to forget and forgive even the labour castes of the city were alive with revolt too many heads had been broken in the early strikes despite their changed and favourable conditions their hatred for the master class had not died the spirit had infected the mercenaries of which 3 regiments in particular were ready to come over to us en masse Chicago had always been the storm center of the conflict between labor and capital, a city of street battles and violent death, with a class-conscious capitalist organization and a class-conscious workman organization, where in the old days the very schoolteachers were formed into labor unions and affiliated with the hod carriers and bricklayers in the American Federation of Labor, and Chicago became the storm center of the premature First Revolt. The trouble was precipitated by the Iron Heel, and it was cleverly done. The whole population, including the favored labor castes, was given a course of outrageous treatment. Promises and agreements were broken, and most drastic punishments visited upon even petty offenders. The people of the Abyss were tormented out of their apathy. In fact, the Iron Heel was preparing to make the abysmal beast roar. And hand in hand with this, in all precautionary measures in Chicago, the Iron Heel was inconceivably careless. Discipline was relaxed among the mercenaries that remained, while many regiments had been withdrawn and sent to various parts of the country. It did not take long to carry out this program, only several weeks. We of the Revolution caught vague rumors of the state of affairs, but had nothing definite enough for an understanding. In fact, we thought it was a spontaneous spirit of revolt that would require careful curbing on our part, and never dreamed that it was deliberately manufactured. And it had been manufactured so secretly, from the very innermost circle of the Iron Heel, that we had got no inkling. The counterplot was an able achievement and ably carried out. I was in New York when I received the order to proceed immediately to Chicago. The man who gave me the order was one of the oligarchs. I could tell that by his speech, though I did not know his name nor see his face. His instructions were too clear for me to make a mistake. Plainly, I read between the lines that our plot had been discovered, that we had been countermined. The explosion was ready for the flash of powder and countless agents of the Iron Heel, including me, either on the ground or being sent there, were to supply that flash. I flatter myself that I maintained my composure under the keen eye of the oligarch, but my heart was beating madly. I could almost have shrieked and flown at his throat with my naked hands before his final, cold-blooded instructions were given. Once out of his presence, I calculated the time. I had just the moments to spare, if I were lucky, to get in touch with some local leader before catching my train. Guarding against being trailed, I made a rush of it for the emergency hospital. Luck was with me, and I gained access at once to Comrade Calvin, the Surgeon-in-Chief. I started to gasp out my information, but he stopped me. I already know, he said quietly, though his Irish eyes were flashing. I knew what you had come for. I got the word fifteen minutes ago, and I have already passed it along. Everything shall be done here to keep the comrades quiet. Chicago is to be sacrificed, but it shall be Chicago alone." Have you tried to get word to Chicago? I asked. He shook his head. No telegraphic communication. Chicago is shut off. It's going to be hell there. He paused a moment, and I saw his white hands clench. Then he burst out. By God, I wish I were going to be there. There is yet a chance to stop it, I said. If nothing happens to the train, and I can get there in time. Or if some of the other Secret Service comrades who have learned the truth can get there in time. You on the inside were caught napping this time, he said. I nodded my head humbly. It was very secret, I answered. Only the inner chiefs could have known up to today. We haven't yet penetrated that far, so we couldn't escape being kept in the dark. If only Ernest were here. Maybe he is in Chicago now, and all is well. Dr. Galvin shook his head. The last news I heard of him was that he had been sent to Boston, or New Haven. This secret service for the enemy must hamper him a lot, but it's better than lying in a refuge. I started to go, and Galvin wrung my hand. Keep a stout heart, were his parting words. What if the first revolt is lost? There will be a second, and we will be wiser then. Goodbye, and good luck. I don't know whether I'll ever see you again. It's going to be hell there, but I'd give ten years of my life for your chance to be in it. The 20th century left New York at 6 in the evening, and was supposed to arrive at Chicago at 7 next morning, but it lost time that night. Note, this was reputed to be the fastest train in the world, then. It was quite a famous train. We were running behind another train. Among the travelers in my pullman was Comrade Hartman, like myself in the secret service of the Iron Heel. He it was who told me of the train that immediately preceded us. It was an exact duplicate of our train, though it contained no passengers. The idea was that the empty train should receive the disaster were an attempt made to blow up the 20th century. For that matter, there were very few people on the train. Only a baker's dozen in our car. There must be some big men on board, Hartman concluded. I noticed a private car in the rear. Night had fallen when we made our first change of engine, and I walked down the platform for a breath of fresh air and to see what I could see. Through the windows of the private car, I caught a glimpse of three men whom I recognized. Hartmann was right. One of the men was General Altendorf, and the other two were Mason and Vanderbilt, the brains of the inner circle of the oligarchist secret service. It was a quiet, moonlit night, but I tossed restlessly and could not sleep. At five in the morning, I dressed and abandoned my bed. I asked the maid in the dressing room how late the train was, and she told me two hours. She was a mulatto woman, and I noticed that her face was haggard, with great circles under the eyes, while the eyes themselves were wide with some haunting fear. "'What is the matter?' I asked. "'Nothing, miss. I didn't sleep well, I guess,' was her reply. I looked at her closely, and tried her with one of our signals. She responded, and I made sure of her. "'Something terrible is going to happen in Chicago.' she said. There's that fake train in front of us. That and the troop trains have made us late. Note, fake, false. Troop trains? I queried. She nodded her head. The line is thick with them. We've been passing them all night, and they're all heading for Chicago, and bringing them over the airline. That means business. I have a lover in Chicago, she added apologetically. He's one of us, and he's in the mercenaries, and I'm afraid for him poor girl. Her lover was in one of the three disloyal regiments. Hartman and I had breakfast together in the dining car, and I forced myself to eat. The sky had clouded, and the train rushed on like a sullen thunderbolt through the grey pall of advancing day. The very Negroes that waited on us knew that something terrible was impending, oppression sat heavily upon them the lightness of their natures had ebbed out of them they were slack and absent-minded in their service and they whispered gloomily to one another in the far end of the car next to the kitchen hartman was hopeless over the situation what can we do he demanded for the 20th time with a helpless shrug of the shoulders he pointed out of the window see all is ready you can depend upon it that they're holding them like this 30 or 40 miles outside the city on every road He had reference to troop trains on the sidetrack. the soldiers were cooking their breakfasts over fires built on the ground beside the track and they looked up curiously at us as we thundered past without slackening our terrific speed all was quiet as we entered chicago it was evident nothing had happened yet in the suburbs the morning papers came on board the train there was nothing in them and yet there was much in them for those skilled in reading between the lines than it was intended the ordinary reader should read into the text The fine hand of the iron heel was apparent in every column. Glimmerings of weakness in the armor of the oligarchy were given. Of course, there was nothing definite. It was intended that the reader should feel his way to these glimmerings. It was cleverly done. As fiction, those morning papers of October the 27th were masterpieces. The local news was missing. This, in itself, was a masterstroke. It shrouded Chicago in mystery, and it suggested to the average Chicago reader that the oligarchy did not dare give the local news. Hints that were untrue, of course, were given of insubordination all over the land, crudely disguised with complacent references to punitive measures to be taken. There were reports of numerous wireless stations that had been blown up, with heavy rewards offered for the detection of the perpetrators. Of course, no wireless stations had been blown up. Many similar outrages that dovetailed with the plot of the revolutionists were given. The impression to be made on the minds of the Chicago comrades was that the general revolt was beginning, albeit with a confusing miscarriage in many details. It was impossible, for one uninformed, to escape the vague yet certain feeling that all the land was ripe for the revolt that had already begun to break out. It was reported that the defection of the mercenaries in California had become so serious that half a dozen regiments had been disbanded and broken, and that their members with their families had been driven from their own city and on into the labor ghettos. And the California mercenaries were in reality the most faithful of all to their salt. But how was Chicago shut off from the rest of the world to know? Then there was a ragged telegram describing an outbreak of the populace in New York City, in which the labor castes were joining, concluding with the statement, intended to be accepted as a bluff, that the troops had the situation in hand. Note, bluff, a lie. And as the oligarchs had done with the morning papers, so had they done in a thousand other ways. These we learned afterward, as, for example, the secret messages of the oligarchs, sent with the express purpose of leaking to the ears of the revolutionists that had come over the wires now and again during the first part of the night. I guess the Iron Heel won't need our services, Hartman remarked, putting down the paper he had been reading when the train pulled into the central depot. They wasted their time sending us here. Their plans have evidently prospered better than they expected. Hell will break loose any second now. He turned and looked down the train as we alighted. I thought so, he muttered. They dropped their private car when the papers came aboard. Hartman was hopelessly depressed. I tried to cheer him up, but he ignored my effort and suddenly began talking very hurriedly in a low voice as we passed through the station. At first I could not understand. I have not been sure, he was saying, and I have told no one. I have been working on it for weeks, and I cannot make sure. Watch out for Knowlton. I suspect him. He knows the secrets of a score of our refuges. He carries the lives of hundreds of us in his hands, and I think he is a traitor. It's more a feeling on my part than anything else, but I thought I marked a change in him a short while back. There is the danger that he has sold us out, or is going to sell us out. I am almost sure of it. I wouldn't whisper my suspicions to a soul, but somehow I don't think I'll leave Chicago alive. ''Keep your eye on Knowlton. Trap him. Find out. I don't know anything more. It is only an intuition, and so far I have failed to find the slightest clue. We were just stepping out upon the sidewalk. Remember,'' Hartman concluded earnestly, ''Keep your eyes upon Knowlton.'' And Hartman was right. Before a month went by, Knowlton paid for his treason with his life. He was formally executed by the comrade in Milwaukee. All was quiet on the streets. Too quiet.'' Chicago lay dead. There was no roar and rumble of traffic. There were not even cabs on the streets. The surface cars and the elevated were not running. Only occasionally, on the sidewalks, were there stray pedestrians, and these pedestrians did not loiter. They went their ways with great haste and definiteness. Withal, there was a curious indecision in their movements, as though they expected the buildings to topple over on them, or the sidewalks to sink under their feet, or fly up in the air. A few gamins, however, were around, in their eyes a suppressed eagerness in anticipation of wonderful and exciting things to happen. From somewhere far to the south, the dull sound of an explosion came to our ears. That was all, then quiet again, though the gamins had startled and listened, like young deer, at the sound. The doorways to all the buildings were closed, the shutters to the shops were up, but there were many police and watchmen in evidence, and now and again automobile patrols of the mercenaries slipped swiftly past. Hartman and I agreed that it was useless to report ourselves to the local chiefs of the Secret Service. Our failure so to report would be excused, we knew, in the light of subsequent events. So we headed for the great labor ghetto on the south side, in the hope of getting in contact with some of the comrades. Too late! We knew it, but we could not stand still and do nothing in those ghastly silent streets. Where was Ernest, I was wondering, What was happening in the cities of the labor castes and mercenaries? In the fortresses? As if in answer, a great screaming roar went up, dim with distance, punctuated with detonation after detonation. It's the fortresses, Hartman said. God pity those three regiments. At a crossing, we noticed in the direction of the stockyards a gigantic pillar of smoke. At the next crossing, several similar smoke pillars were rising skyward in the direction of the west side. Over the city of the mercenaries we saw a great captive war balloon that burst even as we looked at it and fell in flaming wreckage toward the earth. There was no clue to that tragedy of the air. We could not determine whether the balloon had been manned by comrades or enemies. A vague sound came to our ears, like the bubbling of a gigantic cauldron a long way off, and Hartman said it was machine guns and automatic rifles. And still we walked in immediate quietude. Nothing was happening where we were. The police and the automobile patrols went by and only half a dozen fire engines returning, evidently, from some conflagration. A question was called to the firemen by an officer in an automobile, and we heard one shout in reply, No water! They've blown up the mains! We've smashed the water supply, Hartman cried excitedly to me. If we can do all this in a premature, isolated, abortive attempt, what can't we do in a concerted, ripened effort all over the land? The automobile containing the officer, who had asked the question, darted on, Suddenly there was a deafening roar. The machine, with its human freight, lifted in an upburst of smoke and sank down a mass of wreckage and death. Harmon was jubilant. Oh, well done, well done, he was repeating over and over in a whisper. The proletariat gets its lesson today, but it gives one too. Police were running for the spot. Also another patrol machine had halted. As for myself, I was in a daze. The suddenness of it was stunning. How had it happened? I knew not how, and yet I had been looking directly at it. So dazed was I for the moment that I was scarcely aware of the fact that we were being held up by the police. I abruptly saw that a policeman was in the act of shooting Hartman. But Hartman was cool and was giving the proper passwords. I saw the levelled revolver hesitate, then sink down, and heard the disgusted grunt of the policeman. He was very angry, and was cursing the whole Secret Service. It was always in the way, he was averring, while Hartman was talking back to him, and with fitting Secret Service pride, explaining to him the clumsiness of the police." The next moment, I knew how it had happened. There was quite a group about the wreck, and two men were just lifting up the wounded officer to carry him to the other machine. A panic seized all of them, and they scattered in every direction, running in blind terror. The wounded officer roughly dropped, being left behind. The cursing policeman, alongside of me also ran, and Hartman and I ran too. We knew not why, obsessed with the same blind terror to get away from that particular spot. Nothing really happened then, but everything was explained. The flying men were sheepishly coming back, but all the while their eyes were raised apprehensively to the many-windowed lofty buildings that towered like the sheer walls of a canyon on each side of the street. From one of those countless windows the bomb had been thrown, but which window? There had been no second bomb, only a fear of one. Thereafter we looked with speculative comprehension at the windows. Any of them contained possible death. Each building was a possible ambuscade, This was warfare in that modern jungle, a great city. Every street was a canyon, every building a mountain. We had not changed much from primitive man, despite the war automobiles that were sliding by. Turning a corner, we came upon a woman. She was lying on the pavement in a pool of blood. Hartman bent over and examined her. As for myself, I turned deathly sick. I was to see many dead that day, but the total carnage was not to affect me, as did this first forlorn body lying there at my feet, abandoned on the pavement. Shot in the breast, was Hartman's report. Clasped in the hollow of her arm, as a child might be clasped, was a bundle of printed matter. Even in death, she seemed loath to part with that which had caused her death. For when Hartman had succeeded in withdrawing the bundle, we found that it consisted of large printed sheets, the proclamations of the revolutionists. A comrade, I said, but Hartman only cursed the Iron Heel, and we passed on. Often we were halted by the police and patrols, but our passwords enabled us to proceed. No more bombs fell from the windows, the last pedestrians seemed to have vanished from the streets, and our immediate quietude grew more profound. Though the gigantic cauldron continued to bubble in the distance, dull roars of explosions came to us from all directions, and the smoke pillars were towering more ominously in the heavens. End of chapter 22 Recording by Matt Saw Montreal MattSaw.org